Recorded live. Scuba Obsessed is a weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed episode 188 is recorded live February 6th, 2014. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jolson from Michigan, where we're hoping to get some ice dives in here eventually. We finally get some ice, and we're not getting wet. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? Um, good and warm. And we also have joining us Jim Schultz. How are you doing today, Jim? I'm better than a dead fish. Well, that's great. How, how do you exactly get to be better than a dead fish? You're alive. Ah, well, I, I guess I guess that counts. Works for me. And we've been getting a little snow. I saw something this week that said that we have had no, normal a normal winter for us is about uh, sixty eight to seventy five inches of snow. The last two winters had been in the thirties, and we were well over a hundred. I even saw a comparison post that's going around where it shows. Uh, 78 on one of the roads compared to now, and this year is actually a little deeper. I know that it's getting high enough on both sides of my driveway, and I'm using different sets of muscles and getting sore because i got to reach above my normal height to get it all off to the side. Well, this morning what I the problem I've run into is that even though I've had my driveway plowed about 20 times, that's getting packed, and when we get a somewhat warm day, it starts to soften. And there's a good six, eight inches of ice. So my, uh, yeah. So my driveway is really an ice skating rink at this point. So I still have many days of hazardous driving just in a do- the driveway. You got chains? No, I should. I should have chains. I used to have you, chains. Yeah, a lot of mountain dog drivers keep them just for that occurrence. You want to go home, put the chains on and get up the driveway. Yeah, that's a good point. I should... I should look into getting some chains because that, w- that would certainly help. That's what I needed this morning. I, I basically had to rock it until I had worn a groove down to the gravel, and then it got traction and I was able just to drive out. So it can handle it. But Now, what do you think all the snow is going to do to diving this spring? We're going to have some hellacious current and high water, which so, is good because it will scour the bottom. We'll have new bottles. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. That that's true because we had you had all all sorts of new bottles this year. Just of that little what was that like a late spring flood we had? Yeah, yeah. So we we should have quite a few this year. Been it's been a while since we've had a really big flood. Plus, you're going to have ice dams underneath the bridges, which will create some interesting dynamics. Uh, one of the creeks there by work a week ago was frozen solid across. And I noticed that in the last few days, it's broken back open. Well, the river still has a lot of open stretches. Not like it's open across it, but you'll have like a channel in it. Mm-hmm. And that surprises me with as cold as it has been, how come we still have holes and channels in there? Yeah, that's that's what I was wondering. If there's a, a water source that is coming in that's a little bit warmer than we expect. Or you got some kind of current in those particular areas. Yeah. 
Well, we're, we're still not done with winter. I'd, I'd say uh, groundhog or no groundhog, we still have a few more weeks at least. I'm willing to bet, though, by June we have most of the snow gone. <laughs> by June, I th- I, that might be a safe bet. And we'll have an article coming up that will talk about the snow and ice cover. So let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. Thank everybody who's in the chat room this week. It's kind of light. We've got Brian and it's the, and then the rest of us. So Costa Concordia. Let me pull that one up. Still uh, claiming victims. Yeah. It's not over with yet. The salvage diver is dead after being entangled in the underwater wreckage. Uh, it was uh, Israel Franco Moreno was said to have bled to death after he caught his got his leg caught on some metal sheeting. The diver was working on the wreck as he died after becoming entangled. Uh, he's 40 years old, said to have bled to death. They, uh, let's see, they give any more details? I looked uh, it up on a different line, mm-hmm. and uh, the item I got it talked about, according to reports, the victim gashed his leg on metal sheeting underwater and was unable to get free by himself, bleeding profusely until a fellow diver helped him to the surface. The report said he was conscious when surfaced and was airlifted to a hospital where he later died. See, that one says he was later died after airlift. Another one says paramedics were called, but he was declared right, dead at the scene. Right, he was conscious when he was on the surface. He was conscious and living when they put him in the helicopter, and he later died from the injuries or lack of blood. Yeah. And you and you look. I mean, it's, you can't just look at somebody and say, "Hey, he's a good diver or not." But based on the gear and the condition and the boat he was on, he's you know, he looked like he had some experience. So it's a track. As a side note, you bounced your your vocals were bouncing all around there like okay. a reverb. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. It does appear in that trial we have though that he was on scuba. He's got a scuba tank box. Behind him, if that was typical, obviously it looks like he has one heck of an octopus plus a mane. Well, also if you and notice a snap that, on his harness. Yeah. Say again. I was just going to say, if you look behind him, there's a big long tether. Look like for surface supplied air. Yeah, I just can't see his his helmet or his mask. Yeah, I'm trying to see if that's like over by his right arm. If that's what's there, if that's his light. There's yeah, it's, he really wasn't posing for that left. picture. On the left side of the picture, his, by his right arm, yeah. Uh oh, we lost yeah. somebody. I went to a different. I went to a different site and got different pictures of them, which was interesting. Let's see if we can get uh, Jim back. Oh, we lost him. Yeah, we lost him. And I think that that reverb you're hearing on me was just the internet was getting a little congested. Did everybody lose it or just me? Just you. I think I sent you another link there on Skype so you can take a look at what I was looking at earlier. Didn't does it have some pictures with it? I don't know if that was the same one. Let's see here. That one's from the Daily Mail. Did you check the link I just sent you? Yeah, I just clicked on it. It's loading, or it's acting like it might load. Okay. Some of the pictures are quite, I hadn't seen the Concordia from these perspectives, quite, quite interesting. Come on, you can load. Maybe not. Maybe it's not going to load. Oh, boy. We laugh but everybody about editing, but the magic of technology edits out all this dead air. Well, I'll have to come back to it because that's just that website, no matter what, does not want to load. 
Let's see. Next up, we have DEMA. If you're a DEMA member, they've extended the voting period for, uh, let's see what they're saying. The, in order to provide a full 30-day voting opportunity for DEMA members who joined or renewed their membership on January 10th, 2014, which is a date of record for the election, DEMA is extending the voting deadline to 5 p.m. Pacific time on February 10th. And then they say the extension satisfies the requirements of DEMA bylaws and California Corporate Code Section 7520. If you're renewed or joined by January 10th this year and have not voted, please submit your vote as soon as possible. This vote is important, and that's by Tom Ingram, Executive Director of DEMA. More than 400 dead dolphins were found on the North Peru coast. It was found last month. Autopsies are now being performed to determine the cause of death. It was in the Pacific Ocean beaches where twice the amount were encountered in 2012. The autopsies of some 870 dolphins were found in 2012 were, not, were inconclusive. Speculation ranged from both uh, biotoxins in the sea to seismic testing to an unknown ailment. Uh, Yuri Hooker, director of marine biology at the Ciento Horinda University, told the Associated Press, in other parts of the world, dolphin deaths generally are caused by environmental contamination when the sea mammal eats fish or other species filled with toxins. Hooker said others die after ingesting discarded plastics floating in the seas. Marine biologists said that Peru determined the death of the dolphins is complicated because government laboratories only have three or four of the world's hundred or so re- uh, regions or substances or compounds that can be used for determining the animal's cause of death. Doesn't this follow what we were talking about last week also, similar on the coast of California? Yeah, you've got something going on. I'm gonna I'm gonna guess when it's all said and done, there's some sort of uh, uh, bacteria or other condition. I'm not gonna s- speculate what the cause of it is, but that's what they're gonna find out to, to have this many deaths. You know, they mentioned in their plastics. It doesn't seem likely that plastics would peak. Plastic seems like that should be consistent contamination since it's out there in great quantity. I'm also curious about the reference he made to. Government laboratories only have three or four of the 100 regents. Are are they talking about regents? Uh, the testing samples they need to determine, like if you're going to do an autopsy and you want to analyze. That's something I can figure out. And does he mean only his government? That's I def- assume he's taking Peru's government, not everybody else's, because yeah. doesn't sound logical. Yeah, and it could be. Let's see. This is MSN story. But this could be a ding that he's try- he's been not getting the funding he wants, and so he's trying to embarrass his government to kick in some some money because he could obviously send it out. I mean, you could send out samples to other labs and have them do it. Uh, and then we have the Oregon chub is the first fish species that has been saved by the Endangered Species Act. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service wants to remove the minnow from the invasive species list. Uh, the list was created in 1973. If the chub is removed, it will be the first fish to be delisted because it's population recovery since it, the list was created. It was originally added to uh, placed on the list in 1993 at the loss of the floodplain habitats and predation by non-native fish. At the time, fewer than eight populations of chubs existed. With fewer than 1,000 fish, recovery plan to boost the chub's numbers was finalized in 1998 thanks to successful methods such as habitat respiration, restoration, education, and careful monitoring. The species was reclassified as threatened in 2010. 
The Chubb numbers now exceed 150,000 have 80 different habitats around the Williamette area. Uh, the Oregon Chubb is removed from the endangered species list. It will join 26 animals, including the stellar sea lion and gray wolf that have had their populations regrow following their classification as endangered. The National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration is currently considering whether to remove the North Pacific humpback whale from the list with more than 2,000 plants and animal species currently <clears throat> considered endangered in, in the U.S. and abroad. I, I find this really amazing, though. How's that? Uh, just how quick they came back? Well, actually, I, I was looking at here. The successive methods such as habitat restoration, 100% probably, education. So they're sending the damn fish to school? <laughs> Sex education. That's well, it. Well, they're already That's in schools. I just figured out. And careful monitoring. Somebody's watching the fish. That makes them breed better. So they're voyeurs. <laughs> I'm, I'm just curious. I mean, they're saying these three items is responsible for it, and I don't know what kind of education they're giving to fish and <laughs> it, what kind of careful monitoring they're doing, but damn, must be great. Well, how big is this chub? I mean, could they, they mean education. Well, it's said minnow. Yeah. So and I'm I, looking at it against the background of that vegetation, and it don't look too big. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this would be great if it is, but is this a case of where they really improved it that much, or did they miscount it to begin with when it got in the list and they later found new habitat? Uh to me, it sounds more like restoration of where they can go and hide and have fun, and then huh? it happened. Well, I mean, that that's possible. It just seems awful quick for them to have rehabilitated that much habitat. Yeah. It'd, it'd be nice to see a larger study that, was this the only beneficiary of, the, of that habitat being increased, or are there other species and fish that have helped? Because yeah, I know we've got the wolfish aspect up north. You know, and on the, uh, which island, I can't believe, that's not, um, oh darn, what's that little island up north of us? Uh, Beaver, Bear. Beaver Island and a couple of those where they've got some wolf populations and they want to know if they should bring more wolves in because they're dying off. Huh. Yeah, because you've got, uh, uh, doesn't Isle Royal have some wolves as well? I do believe so. Yeah, yeah. So this winter is going to be good for it with the ice cover uh, because I think that's how the wolves got there in the first place. They, yeah, originally. They, they they were wandering on the ice, and they got stuck on the island. Because yeah. you really, those even, I mean, there's they're small islands that you really can't have a breeding population on them anyway. Bring in some more ladies. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure the uh, male wolves would be all happy for it. Oh, heck yeah. And speaking of uh, some increased discoveries, we have researchers believe they have discovered a new species of deep diving whale. They've identified the mysterious beak whale based on a study of seven animals stranded on remote tropical islands in the Indian and Pacific Oceans over the past 50 years. The beaked whales are a widespread but little-known family of toothed whale, distant relatives to sperm whale. They're found in deep ocean waters beyond the edge of the continental shelf through the world's oceans. They are rarely seen at sea due to their elusive habits, long dive capacity, and apparent low abundance for some species. Understandably, most people have never heard of them, says international team leader Dr. Merrill Dalebout, who is a visiting research fellow at the UNSW. <coughs> Bless you. Can they, can they have any more that's National Museum? No, they don't even say what it is. Isn't that like a rule when you publish something, you say what your frickin' acronyms are? 
Right. I didn't know if that was UN something or not. Like you mean as in UN as in United Nations? Yes. Oh, goodness. Hopefully not. We had a rule at work that, you know, whenever there was new people around, you couldn't use any TLAs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And if you can't figure out what that means, just email us at the show at Scuba Obsessed. We'll pass it on to Jim so he can answer it for you. Uh, so let's see. It says two years later, other researcher. Oh, okay. Um, you know, and when you read the article, you you go back and it says 50 years ago. So this is not necessarily a new discovery. This is on the 26th of January, 1963, a four and a half meter long blue gray beaked whale was washed up at, uh, Rat Malana, Rat gosh, uh, near Colombo. Sometimes I think these are jokes. These, they just seed in here. Uh, the, the then, then director of the National Museum of, uh, Cylon, P-E-P, uh, described as a new species, Mesophilondion hatula, after the local Shingala word for pointed beak. Uh, two years later, other researchers reclassified the specimen as an existing species. Now, who did you have to tick off that they take your discovery away from you? Uh, hopefully uh-huh. hopefully he's still alive because uh, he, he ev- eventually was proven right, and they're now saying it is a new species. This is being verified by the U.S. Smithsonian National Museum in Washington, D.C., the Island Conservation Society in the San Chiles, and the University of Auckland in New Zealand. The genetic analysis were conducted as part of international collaboration with the U.S. NMFS, Southwest Fishery Science Center, and Oregon State University. Is, is the CIA naming all these groups? Is that why they, they, they have all these acronyms? Not a clue. I looked up UNSW and it's Australia, and it doesn't give me anywhere in the document what it stands for. No. It's like they and just. It's, it's driving me nuts. It's like, come on, people. Yeah, and this is what the website, which we'll pick on, is, is phys.org, P H Y S dot O R G, which tends to have a lot of, of uh, science stories in it. Uh, it's not unusual for us to have one on here, but I just it just doesn't make any sense. Oh, now you got to go back down and look at the comments. They're just, uh, they're going on about the spelling. How would you know that was spelled wrong? Is this like uh, scientist flame wars in the chat room? I don't know. And then another new species found, giant jellyfish, was found on an Australian beach. They're working to classify the new species of jellyfish that washed up, up on the beach in Tasmania. Uh, it's a family found a one and a half, which is about five feet, jellyfish in a beach and Hobart last month, Dr. Lisa Ann Gershwin of Australia's CSIRO government agency. You know, we need to have a like a drinking game. I mean, we already have one probably every time I mispronounce, but now we should have one any time we have an acronym. Now, at least they come down, they say what it is. Commonwealth Science and Industrial Research Organization. Is that Shiro? Uh, said that scientists had known about the species of whale, but had not yet classified it. Oh, species for a while, not whale. Uh, why would you just not class? What? Are they that busy? I mean, isn't that what you're in science for, is to discover new things and have it named after you or your uncle or somebody? I mean, why would you? No, you, you have it named after whoever gives you the money that lets you research it. Oh, okay. So they're, that's what they're doing. They're so waiting. We're, you know, we're just keeping a couple in, in the back pocket for when we need some research money. Ah, so when you come in with I a, would. I was going to say, I would name them 
other than something in Latin so I can understand it and, and pronounce it. <laughs> you know, like George Longtooth or something. <laughs> or or a big bubbly object with mane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're saying this species is part of the lion's mane group, which is that big jellyfish that you always see photoshopped to be about 50 feet wide. Would you like to learn some little trivia factoids about jellyfish? Certainly. Okay. The bell can pulsate for locomotion, which everybody probably knew that, but it doesn't have a respiratory system. Since the skin is thin enough, the body is oxygenated by diffusion. Jellyfish are 95 to 98% water. They do not have light, they do not have light sensitive organs that form images, but they can determine light and dark, and that helps them determine up and down. The longest meaning the lion mane jellyfish, it's tentacle. They found one that was 120 feet long. They do sting. They're rarely fatal, but they hurt like a blank yeah. blank. They typically they live from a few hours to several months. I didn't realize they, they were short-lived like that. Uh, typical is two to six months. They are carnivorous. They eat plankton, fish eggs, small fish, other jellyfish. They ingest and vomit through the same hole in their belly, in their bell. <laughs> Items that eat jellyfish, meaning the predators, are other jellyfish. And I did know that tuna, shark, swordfish, and sea turtles, and one species of Pacific salmon, eat jellyfish. I didn't know that. They're found in every ocean from the surface to the deep seas. You also have freshwater jellyfish. And the little suckers are anywhere between 500 and 700, making them the oldest multi-organed animal. So there's a factoid for the day. Great. Other than, of course, they're not vertebrates and they're not true fish. It's a misnomer when they say jellyfish. Now you said uh, so, tuna, for the day. tuna eats jellyfish? That's what they were saying. Huh. Tuna, shark, swordfish, sea turtles. I like peanut butter with Pretty my neat. jellyfish. Yeah. Or... A little mayo, a little pickle. Uh, I just spread them on toast. goes really easy. Yeah. But then again, I like jelly with or my not. tuna fish. Uh, I don't. I don't think that'd be good. I had, no, I, it is good. I had jelly with a hot dog once, and I think it was one of the worst things I'd ever eaten. No, great with tuna fish. Huh. I don't know. I'll have to be brave one of these times and try it. But uh, It's kind of like sweet and sour? Yeah, it, it sounds like it. Should be okay. I've just had some bad experience, so. And this looks like some bad experience in Delaware. Cost of underwater surveys a shocker for the Delaware Aquaculture Regulation Workshop. Is it one of the unexpected revelations at the workshop in the state agriculture regulations? The cost of surveying the underwater lease areas. The issue is who pays a survey of more than 600 acres of proposed lease site near the Indian River and Little Aswan men bays the estimated cost of survey for the first acre is four thousand five hundred dollars this is according to Stuart michaels state fishery manager and fishery biologist this is much by of the way that that's two million seven hundred thousand for all of it and that's the survey 600 acres yep. they said much of the initial cost is to mobilize this survey team but the people who specialize in this type of work earn three hundred dollars an hour i want that job why do, why is it justified for $300 an hour. I wonder when it said people, if that's all the people together or one person. Is it $300 an hour? I think it's like that guy who gets drugged behind the boat taking pictures of the bottom. Doesn't he make 300 bucks an hour? Yeah, yeah, that's that's what he should make. 
should he make it? <laughs> <laughs> nice job if you can get it. I want some of that work. <laughs> the price brought immediate sticker shock to about 50 people who turned out for the workshop. In other state survey costs are subsidized or the aquaculturist foots the bill, state fisheries officials said. I don't want to jump in blind, said Bob Collins, who's considering an aquaculture enterprise in Delaware's island bays. I want to know what's going to cost. Several other people in the crowd suggested less costly options, such as subdividing the leased areas into plots. But the state officials worry that even if there's a legal action, either over the location of plot or encroachment or damage into passing boats, the best options have a detailed survey. So this sounds like the survey is just like the survey we have above land. Or am I missing something? Well, it sounds like you'd want to do a bottom scan. But could I mean, you, you, you do it on the water, it's, oh, yeah, it's flat. <laughs> so you'd want to know the various depth, and the bottom is a mock, hard pack, loose pack, I would imagine. So you'd want contour maps out of things, I think you'd want. So is, is that what it is? They're mapping it in advance so people know what's the appropriate bid price? You know, so if there's something that, if there's an area that would not be good for the fish or the the aqua farming that they don't get stuck with something that isn't viable. I'd hate to have a shipwreck in the middle of my aqua farm. <laughs> well, maybe that is too. That's a good point. But you know, m- my thought was take and put four stone markers around the outside of it, have those accurately surveyed. Then you overlay everything onto a map and you say, here you go. Here's the GPS coordinates. You know, everybody's GPS is within five feet. So, Unless somebody really wants to get anal about it, then you charge them. You go, hey, you guys want to dispute it? You you split the survey cost 50-50, and what the results are is what you get. So, well, At least they're trying to figure out what it's going to cost me. They they didn't pass the bill first. Then you could see what it's going to cost, if you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've heard that before. You have yeah. to pass it to see what it's going to cost. Yeah. Well, also you want to know if they had actually any bids, or is this just, you know, there's like one provider and they just went to them and this is their list price and you need to negotiate it down a little bit also sounds like it's uh, shallow water doesn't it and looking at the pictorials i'm picturing it being kind of like marshy delta type of areas Mm -hmm. there in the bay when you look at it you can see some pilings and you know um, i'm not up to date on what a shellfish farmer is well, you see them, and I don't think we've got enough information to know what type of shellfish they're doing here, but you see some of them where you set up like a, a cribbing and they'll suspend, uh, it's basically like nylon socks or ladies' nylons, and uh, the if it's clams, uh, they're, they're in that nylon. And then you've got some of them, depending if you've got predators. I know on the West Coast they actually will protect from uh, sea lions being able to get to the, the shellfish, whatever they're doing. So there's a variety of operations. Okay, I just looked up, for example, Washington shellfish growers, and it doesn't sound like a lot of uh, fun. It's a tough way to make a living. And storms can really screw you up. Quality of the water, if that comes and goes, like they've been having these virals and oh, yeah. uh, red tides. Yeah, this doesn't sound like a uh, fun thing to do. It's not easy. Yeah, they were saying clams, mussels, and uh, geoduck. Yeah. So, yeah, it sounds interesting. I'm glad somebody does that. Yeah. Oh, they're mighty tasty. Let's see. Back to your Costa Concordia article finally came back. Oh, that did that same uh, photo, just not cropped. So what kind of dry suit is that? That's kind of a neoprene dry suit he was in? 
Oh, and if you go further down, you're back to that one. You'll see side shots of the, the uh, ship you hadn't seen before. Freaking awesome! Yeah, it's amazing just how how crushed that is. Go to the about fourth one. Interesting. Yeah, looks like the side of a cardboard box. You know, how you have those waffle areas. Yeah, it, it. That's that's some kind of shot there. I can definitely see the uh, sharp metal objects that could cut you in half. Oh, it'd be easily to happen. Yeah, if you got in the wrong spot and pulled just right and got caught. Yeah, it's 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 not a safe environment. Uh, the other pictures, I'm glad we saw these. Uh, take a look at the GoPros mounted on the hard hats over their neoprene hats. And every one of these guys is uh, scuba. That may be because of how, where they're, if they're navigating inside the vessel, you don't have all the lines to get hung up. I can see they have lifelines coming back out, right. the heavy-duty ones. Uh, but the ones down below where it has them as a, as a buddy team, that's all scuba. Yeah. Yeah, they're on scuba. They're using, uh, the, you see, they have two LED lights on each side of their, their bump helmet. And that one guy is wearing doubles. Yeah. 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 Some nice pictures. I didn't know if you'd seen those. That's why I said, hey, take a look at these, because it gave me a different perspective. Yeah. Now, this next article, not exactly scuba diving related, but it just kind of stuck a chord with me. And if you read through the article, which the article is Tunnel Vision, How an Obsessed Explorer Found and Lost the World's Oldest Subway, and you just were to substitute that from tunnel to shipwreck, there just seems to be a lot of similarities there. And what the story is, is this is uh, uh, Bob Diamond, who, when he was in his 20s, uh, rediscovered an abandoned subway tunnel. What's that, Mac? Oh, you! I didn't hear anything, and you broke up again. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, but this is about Dub, uh, Bob Diamond, who rediscovered an abandoned subway tunnel. Uh, it was the Atlantic Avenue Tunnel. And what it had done is when they had steam engines that used to go into New York City, they actually ran them underground because they were uh, a risk to the pedestrians. Population was so heavy, people were getting run over by the train, which seems kind of silly if you're not smart enough to get out of the way. So they they ran them underground. And then, let's see, what year did they say that they got buried in? Uh, 1861. It was sealed shortly after Brooklyn banned steam locomotives within the city limits. And then the, uh, the tunnel was reopened in 1920s where it was used for mushroom growing and bootlegging. And then in the 1940s when the FBI opened it looking for Nazis, but soon after it was lost again. And then in the 1950s, two historians attempted to find it and failed. Uh, he then rediscovered the tunnel in 1980 when he was a 20-year-old engineering student on a scholarship, made him a hero. Uh, he decided to restore the tunnel in the city instead of taking his engineering job. Uh, he gradually built up a career and identity around the 160-year-old underpass. Uh, he actually received a grant, but the, they looks like he never, uh, him and his organization never f- finally re- got the the funds. Uh, and it goes on and on, and it's very interesting if you're into this this sort of thing. But what happened is at some point in 2009, the city just said, "Nope, you can't go in there. It's too dangerous. Sorry," and they shut it off. So he's been trying to fight and get his way back in. And he maintains that part of the reason is that he does not have the pedigree or the education, uh, the paperwork, certifications uh, for this, and that they're essentially penalizing him. And I totally agree. 
it's interesting. Uh, if you go to that other acronym, P-A-N-C-Y or Y-C, mm-hmm. that's Professional Archaeologist of New York City. That started or was founded in 1979, which was one year before the guy went in and discovered this tunnel. Yeah. All right, and opened it up and used it. So I just went back and looked. Uh, that P-A-N-C-O-Y-C is open only to professional archaeologists with a master's degree or higher who have an interest in New York archaeology. If you're a non-professional, you can join the Metropolitan Chapter of the New York State Archaeological Association, blah, 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 blah. Meaning you could send them money. Yeah, and get to say you're a member of it. Um, I went through and looked at the charter. It says archaeological protection legislation. Protection of archaeological sites is undertaken under the provisions of legislative legislation and regulations of federal, state, and local governments, blah, which you already know. In New York City, the Landmarks Preservation Committee, or commission, has authority over all projects that come under the provisions of the City Environmental Quality Review Act. Uh, another wonderful acronym. Now, if you remember some of these, I like the shipwreck they found in New York City. Yep. Refound, I should say. Since everybody knew where it was, it was buried over because you build new, you just filled it in. Well, when they dug it out to build something newer, now it's a big deal. Uh, that's like where they found that cemetery. It had been filled in. Yep. They were tearing things down to build something new, rediscovered it again, even though they knew where it was. Now it's a antiquity site, and they have to work on it. The items, I think, are funny, though. Even though their own verbiage is, current procedures provide only limited protection for archaeological sites and are vulnerable to change to the political environment. That answers the whole damn problem of this guy. Yeah. Somebody else wants to make money off of his stuff, therefore they're putting him out so they can go in and make the money. Well, and there was in the article they talk about a few different quotes after they cut him off of different agencies saying that the plan is to reopen it. Right. And they don't give him specific items of why it's dangerous. Since he took the fire department on tour, the uh, other, if you go through who he, who is, he has provided services to and shown this area, it's amazing. Only after he took the members of the professional archaeologists of New York City down there did these problems really come about. The last statement I thought that by this group put out, it says... It is unusual for artifacts with any intrinsic value to be found on New York City archaeological sites since most deposits contain refuge with broken bottles, ceramics, and other fragmentary artifacts. Basically, it got dumped on when it got buried, built new stuff. When they tore that down, it's already contaminated the site. Therefore, what are they finding new? Nothing. So why do they need all this protection no reason it's interesting yeah. well political environment that was a whole item yeah the, the grant he got which the, uh he formed the brooklyn historic railway association and they won a 2.6 million dollar grant in the city in 1987 to restore the tunnel build a museum yeah he said conflicts grew increasingly heated as the aaa which is the atlantic avenue association tried to oppose its vision for the tunnel and disagreement arose over money imagine that yeah Money and politics. Yep. Because you take a look at how many people went down there and the programs he had, you know, who was going to come down and do uh, do uh, programs. Rooftop films were going to do it. Yeah. Uh, they had National Geographics in 2010. So it, it's a matter of 
this looks like we can make some money out of it. And yeah, he, he, obviously he, he's a little man on totem pole. Yeah, he, well, he paved the way. He got all the stuff done, all the documentation, all the 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 no thank you work done, and then somebody else saw it. So they just, you know, what what's my, lo, most likely going to happen is they'll they'll wait till he goes away or dies. Then all of a sudden you'll see somebody else do something with it. Yeah, it is a shame when you look at it. He's become uh, a recluse. Yeah, uh, he basically lives on. Uh, food stamp, social security disability, and he has post-traumatic stress. He said caused by the war of the tunnel. I, you know, you might feel like somebody's at, out to get you. Well, sounds like they are. They, they are. Yeah. So it's it's interesting. But I could just uh, if I took my way and said, okay, this is not a subway tunnel. I could see this happening on any shipwreck. And on it. You've seen these shows where it says uh, the city is under, underground in New York and all yeah. the major cities. These people go in and explore and find stuff that's been walled up for years. Mm-hmm. Keep it to yourself, and you can do pretty good. Since you open your mouth, it's gone. Yeah, yeah. You, 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 that's your reward for doing it the right way. <laughs> yeah. Let, letting everybody know. Well, how's this for something? A mystery light underwater. They they believe they have solved what it was. They started getting nine one one calls. That there was light offshore, and this was, let's see, well, this is uh, Seattle. Well, you saw the follow-up on it, right? Yep. Yeah, they said it was, uh, this was noticed on January 30th, an extremely bright light underwater across from the Bonaire Drive. They called this Coast Guard, but they were unable to determine the source of the light. According to scanner calls, it marked the location via GPS and continued to investigate. Then on February 4th, they had an update where the police department public affairs officer Reen Witt explained that the SPD and the Coast Guard didn't find anything or anyone in distress. They did, however, find that the light in question, and it was attached to a crab pot, possibly put there by a fisherman. Now, what I'd like to understand, is that a, is was that like a buoy, like it was just floating in the water, or is this from deep underwater? It sounds like a crab pot's going to be on the bottom. Yeah. So it was just so cl- clear enough. Is there a pretty shallow or one hell of a cleat light down there on that crab pot? Yeah. Well, and then the reason why I think this is scuba related is that it just makes me think that with, you know, how many, like if you were a diver out there and you had drifted off and you're waving your light, you'd be thankful if somebody called 911 and they came out for you. Oh, yeah. What happens the next time there's a light out there and it really is a diver? <laughs> They're just thinking crab pot and we'll get it in the morning. Yeah, that's why you file a diver plan with your boat plan. Yeah, yeah, you let somebody know where you are at. Absolutely. Also, and it, when it, you're going to be back, it it tells you that you need to make sure you have really good uh, lights and reflective gear, and you're visible and obvious. So it's just not a light out in the distance that they can tell it's a diver. Yeah, yeah. And then, how's this for a wedding ceremony? At first, I thought it was a misprint when they said how deep it was. I'm going to try and remember to get this into the chat room. Yeah, 426 feet. That's amazing. Yeah. And you got Deco involved? I just sent you another link that you didn't have, by the way. Uh-oh, the Guinness record. Let's see here. Yeah. I, I read through it just like you did. I'm glad I looked at the last picture on this item I sent you. The logistics on that must have been a real pain in the butt. Well, because you've got the, you know, the bride and groom have got to be down there. Uh, they had the best man was down there. I mean, they had the wedding party. They had the, I mean, this was it's just not a case of one person. You've got a whole crew. They said uh, Yoshidi and Smith, 
both diving instructors by profession, underwent six hard months of an intensive training to prepare for the 190-minute underwater ceremony. Now, I'm hoping the ceremony itself was in 190 minutes. I, I'm hoping that they're including uh, deco time in there. Because if, if, if it was a 190-minute ceremony, then you're, you're going to be in a saturation situation at that depth. 130 meters. The wedding party saw friends and fellow diving instructor Ben uh, Raymentis acting as Yashadas and Smith's ordained minister, while cave divers Pekka and Charles acted as best man and secondary witnesses, respectively. This is in a Guinness statement. To protect the platinum ring from slipping from the fingers, it was knotted into a safety spool, clipped into Pekka for safe transportation. Once at 130 meters, Pekka passed the end of the line off an unwinding Sandy's ring tied to it. Despite being underwater in cave breathing off closed-circuit rebreathers, the groom, the groom did get to kiss the bride. So was everybody in rebreathers? Who sponsored this? They, they, they missed out. Let's see. we got to look and see what their logos are. Nope, no logos. No sponsors. Which rebreather company missed out on this one? All of them. Which photo are you talking about, Mac? Uh, the one, that one that had a group photo of at least 20 people. Yeah, it's not even loading on mine. Just sits there. And empty. a good number of them have wet toots, so I imagine those were the individuals who were down there with them. I swear the Internet's worse now than it was three years ago. I used to never yeah, have this It sounded problem. like it took them eight minutes to get to the altar part, do their ceremony, and a lot of deco coming up. Wow, that is a big group. Now, a couple of ladies in the skirts, I don't think were down there, but all the ones in the wet suits and the wet looks like they were participants in the water. Yeah, I'd say so. Well, congratulations to them. And and there's an article every week about somebody getting married to or proposed to underwater. But this one, you know, when you're 426 feet down, that that is not, that's just not somebody learning to get certified and popping down for one dive. No, that, that's, that's what I said. That, the logistics on that. Must have been amazing, and I'd be curious what kind of surface support they had. Yeah, because what you have to have backups and for everybody. Okay, they're they're on on a poster that they do have some. Looks like there were some sponsors. O three was the uh, protection gear. They had first buddy divers, blue label diving, Sunto and Apex. So a couple of them did get them uh, PR in there then. Yeah, at least enough to pay some money to get on their poster. Yeah. Now let's go back for some archaeology. This one's in Turkey. An underwater basilica. This was discovered, um, well, the, the, the article's from January 31st. Um, Turkish archaeologists have found uh, a few answers to an ancient Byzantine basilica recently found in the bottom of Lake Iznik, ancient Nexia, close to the coast of uh, Marmara Sea. The remains of the big structures were found fairly by chance a few months ago thanks to pictures taken to promote tourism in the area. The silhouette of the ancient building was discovered uh, in the photos, and they detected underwater, and a team of archaeologists from the university uh, started investigating. Excavation work found the remains of a basilica probably built around the 4th century A.D. The structure is very similar uh, to another basilica that was turned into a mosque built in the same period. The city was once a stronghold to the east of the new Christian religion. In 325, soon after the Edict of Milan, which granted religious freedom to citizens of the Roman Empire, ending persecution, it hoisted the first uh, council of the Christian world. So you could do some grubbing in there, couldn't you, Mac? Well, that's right off. That's off the province of Bursa in Turkey, uh, the lake is. That lake is 32 kilometers long, 
10 kilometers wide, has a maximum depth of 240 feet. You figure that place has been an active seaport and sea area since 1331 from the time of the Byzantines. So, yeah, I'd love to go grubbing in that area. Are you kidding? <laughs> Maybe not at 240 feet, though. No, no. Is that how they, deep they said this was? Now, this basilica doesn't look to be that deep, does it? Say again? The basilica can't be 240 feet down. No, that that wasn't. That was within uh, visibility of, of the surface. They figured it had been less than 50 feet, a lot less than 50 feet. If you went in, like, I, I went ahead and took a look at the uh, the province and the lake itself, and if you look at the forts, oh, man, metal detector guy would go nuts there. <laughs> it, it was really an interesting place. You know what it probably is, is everybody there's probably got their shelves all full of knickknacks from a thousand years ago, and nobody's really has any interest in collecting anything more. And it must be the week for it, or the month for it. They've got, uh, here's another one. This one is from divers in Sweden have discovered a rare collection of Stone Age artifacts that were buried deep uh, in the Baltic Sea. They they say that it was le- uh, left a little bit earlier than the last one, Swedish Swedish nomads, 11,000 years ago, and discovery may have been evidence of one of the oldest settlements ever found in the Nordic region. Some of the relics are so well-preserved, reports have dubbed it the Swedish Atlantis, suggested that the settlement may have swallowed whole by the sea at the same way the mythical island in the Atlantic Ocean. I couldn't see it earlier. Buried 16 meters below the surface, uh, they uncovered wood, flint tools, animal horns, and ropes. The most notable item they discovered was a harpoon carving made from animal bone and bones of ancient animal called uh, rocks. I've never even heard of that. A-U-R-O-C-H-S. They say they're uh, ancestors of modern-day cattle and lived throughout Europe before becoming extinct in the early 1600s. They said the last one died in Poland in 1627. I guess that's why I haven't heard of it. <laughs> you're, you're not going to find them in the butcher case. They must have been really tasty, or we'll find out they just turned into cows. The artifacts have been preserved because of their diving location is rich in sediment called a gitya. Must be when you walk into it, it gets you. Black. Yeah, it forms peat. Yeah, gel light. Yeah, which is, like you said, it's, it forms peat. As the peat's buried, the amount of oxygen drops, and it is uh, the lack of oxygen which prevents things from being lost or actually eaten. As a side note, uh, they've actually found bodies in peat preserves like this that are better preserved than the mummification in Egypt. Yeah. Yeah, Great Britain's got some uh, peat bogs where you, yep. they find that stuff all the time. They found, uh, and, and what they're preserved, but they can't figure out why they were there. I mean, they're obviously dead, but they've had, they've had them with uh, ropes and cuts and different things, and they've done what you would consider to be a normal autopsy, and they can't decide where, you know, they're, they're having a hard time trying to figure out if they were dead when they were put in there, were they robbed and thrown in the bog, you know, what what was it? Yeah, the one I remember reading about not too long ago in some book, it was a mother and child, and the mother had, you know, like cuddling with the child. Mm-hmm. So it, it sounded like they died and they put them together and put them in the bog because that's what they used to do. Yeah. It's like quicksand went down, and it was, it was interesting. Did they say how deep... They were working. It was, but I didn't see it in the article I was looking at. It was really shallow. I, I, I already closed it up, but I was going to say it was like sixteen. It was either sixteen feet or sixteen meters. 
because I knew they had worked on this particular site for over three years, and that was funded by the Swedish National Heritage Board. And they're continuing it, but not at the same level. Yeah, as long as they just let somebody keep looking around and studying it, that'd be great. Let's see, I'm going to go back 16 meters below the surface. 11,000 years old. That, that, uh, yeah, that's, that's a long time ago. Oh, 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 okay, now I just found some pictures. Uh, the visibility is pretty good. Uh, just for fun, since you're interested, I'll send you this. Uh, I don't know how deep this guy is, but that's a decent shot. Yeah. I, I'm picturing that they're in, uh, it's very kind of tannic, you know, whenever you talk about peat. Uh, well, this one here has good visibility. I'm estimating the guy's at about 25 feet, and it looks like a sandy bottom where he's at and some big rocks. But I just sent to where I'm at. That doesn't look like a giant foot that he's looking at. That's interesting, though. Yeah, it looks like, doesn't it? Yeah. It's, it's like a, a big bone. Yeah, it's like, it's oh, like you got and a... And the bones of an ancient animal called, I yeah. wonder if you found any unicorns down there. <laughs> yeah, unicorns. Well, the last, whatever that word is, died in Poland in 1627. Yeah. I don't know what it was, but it looked pretty freaking big. Well, I don't know if that's a bone of that creature or something else. Uh, probably something else, but still interesting. Yeah. And then we've got the... Yeah, Jim, we're picking up your breathing all of a sudden. Uh, the next one is... Oh, I just had it. Did it overwrite it? The ice cover? Yeah, I had the... Oh. Want me to read no, it? No, well, I, I, got, I got something I specifically want to go over on it, so got to load oh, okay. it again. It's like that link that, that you sent me when I clicked on it. Instead of opening a new window, it just wrote right on over it. Oh. Well, I find it interesting that they were saying it's a high-resolution satellite photo from Tuesday, January 28th, showing storms along the western side of Lake Michigan. I've been trying to get out and do a little flying out there and take a look at some of the open water areas because it's not frozen all the way across, and there's some good you know, layers of water out there, and I really want to see what that looks like. Yeah, I, I'd be interested because I think this is the article. They're saying uh, Lake Superior, and this was from January 29th. Lake Superior is, 20, is 69% covered. Lake Michigan was 46. Lake Huron was 71. Lake Erie is almost totally covered at 96%, and Ontario had 26%. They said what is odd was how early in the winter this amount of I would ice imagine Lake Huron formed. should be because uh yeah, you would think Lake Huron I'm, I would think Lake Michigan would freeze up before Lake Huron but I guess I guess maybe not. No, Lake Huron would because it's the shallowest collectively. Oh, okay. No, I take that back. Lake Erie Lake Erie is the shallowest. Uh, Huron is not the shallowest. Yeah. Erie is. Yeah, so they That's said, why it's totally covered. I can believe that. Yeah. Well, cuz Superior is deep, but that's farther north. Yep. Um uh, they said 62% ice cover already ranks this year as the 17th in the maximum ice coverage in the last 40 years. 1994, the highest ice coverage at 94.8%. Yeah, you could walk from St. Joe to Chicago across the ice. Well, and I remember that, 94. Yeah. I remember my dad talking about that, the nuclear plant. Yep. Uh, the dry Arctic air has been over much of the Great Lakes region, allowing for clearing skies over land. And even over parts of lakes that give us a high-resolution satellite photo, which was taken. The photo shows a large area of ice formed off the west side of Lake Michigan, off the shore of northern Indiana through Chicago area up to the Wisconsin shoreline. Ice is also covering Saginaw Bay and Green Bay, although the uh, area is covered mostly in clouds. I like the part where it talked about 
eastern Lake Superior had water temperatures between 32 and 37, and they've actually found pockets of surface water at 40 degrees in Lake Michigan and Lake Huron. Still for pretty freaking chilly, though. That is chilly. Uh, that They had that chart in there, which you go all the way down, and it shows about how the ice cover is. And it just shows you how the weather changes so quickly. Because we started off real early. I mean, we just started off early having it, and it peaked. And then it started to average back out and get close to the uh, historical average of cover. And then we just had that cold week there, and it just jumped up. Yeah. And uh, we've already exceeded the average peak for the season. And I think we got some cold weather coming again. Well, it's supposed to be below zero again tonight and tomorrow. Yep. And they were saying the chill, wind chill factor was anywhere from 15 to 25 below here in the southern part of Lake or Michigan. Yep. And they were saying they were seeing another Arctic outbreak scheduled between February 6th and 10th. Yep. They said the positive thing is that spring will come. <laughs> At least, at least we're, so, we're assuming. Yeah. Like I said, June and July, I think all the stuff from my yard will be good. Okay. Well, that does it for uh, the scuba in the news. Uh, we have now, now here's for a photo of the day. Is this too young to start a scuba diver? Well, that's what I call a bottle baby. <laughs> so if you're wondering what we're talking about, you're going to have to go to our show notes which uh, it usually takes me till the weekend. I was, I was a little late this weekend again, but they do make it up. And also, if you wanted to see it right away, you could go follow us on Scoop It, www.scoop.it forward slash T forward slash Scoob Obsessed. I can't handle those doubles, though. Those doubles? Yeah, it, you start young, and it's, you know, it's like they say if you started lifting a cow or a steer early on that you'd be able to lift it all the way till it was full grown. So it's kind of the same thing. If you start off lifting doubles as a baby and you just work your way up, increase the volume, you're going to be set. And then video of the week. Uh, this one is of the Sea Shepherd, which is the, I don't I don't know what you would call him, like a eco-activist? No, I'd call him eco-terrorist. Eco-terrorist? Well, yeah, the fisher guys are doing what is legal, permitted by, by law, by their culture, and by UN laws of fishing on the Great Lake or on the lakes, and these are impeding people doing lawful pursuit of their, you know, their rights. It, they just try to attribute it to, you know, they, they try to make it gory. Look at the blood spills, because we've had uh, several here lately. You know, they have the seal one. There's a, a different whaling one they have, and they always try to make it people are bad because they're doing this. It's only because they don't have to go out there and cut the head off the fish they eat for their dinner on Friday. Ain't no difference. Well, I understand what you're, what, what you're saying there. I mean, I'm, I'm one for – I think everybody should do the uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Berg and actually kill at least one of their old, me, old meals. If you're, if you're not going to be a vegetarian, you need to have at least killed something that you eat. Because people get too soft. They don't realize that's what the cost of, uh, you know – Eating meat is if you don't want to go through and do that effort. Uh, the, the, see, I'm kind of torn on this because I think the Japanese are just playing around with uh, a loophole. Because well, it's only a loophole because all the other governments got together and tried to make them so they can't do their cultural item. They can't fish in their way they've done for hundreds and hundreds of years. Oh, we used to whale too. I mean. 
well, what about the guys who drag the nets and get billions of freaking fish? Oh, I'm not. I'm not for them. And either. then they toss out the ones they don't want. That's got more damaging to the economy than this. Oh yeah, certainly. I'm. I'm. And again, I, we got I eight billion those... people trying to eat out of the ocean. Yeah. No, we 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 need to get rid of those factory fish farms. They're not doing anybody any favors. Uh, they're just tearing up the bottom. They're you know they've got huge amounts of bycatch. Uh, and I bet you, if you had independent auditors on there, they wouldn't pass any of the, the laws that they they're supposed to be. So you're saying go back to the mom and pop shops where you could go out and do your fish and bring it back to shore, process it. Yeah, that would be more jobs for more people. Yeah, well, which it would be, and I think it would be less hazardous to the the ocean environment. You'd have more depth, of course, because you'd have more fishermen out there. Yeah, but and your fish prices would rise, but. I think you would have a better recovery rate in the oceans. Yeah, it, it's it's more sustainable. It would create new markets. It is it amazing would, what these guys harvest when they go out in these fleet boats. Yeah, oh, they're just they're just they've got this huge giant net, and they go and they go and they go, and that that vessel's a factory. It processes everything. Out comes fro- you know deep frozen boxes of fish sticks. Yeah. So yeah, I I think it needs to go back to the small farmers. You, know, you, you know, limit the boat size, limit the size of the crew. Uh, you you know you'd, you'd have a community back there on the piers of you know maybe two or three hundred fishing families as opposed to one big boat that goes in some large pier somewhere. Yeah. Uh, and then also that would you know it might get a little bit more expensive for a while, but then you'd have fish farming. Yeah, the potential for that uh, could be economically viable, but. Yeah, we're, we've just overdone it. Uh, potential cool scuba gear. Uh, first thing is, how, how's this for some equipment? Another day, enough. The Japanese admit losing a $5 million underwater drone. Uh, oops. <laughs> it it looked like it was uh, an unmanned submarine, like an ROV, and it did have a tether on, but it uh, came loose from the tether. It was the uh, Japan Maritime Self-Defense I Force. I that soon as... Go ahead. One would have thought that as soon as it broke contact with that cable, they would have been pinging real quick for a location on their GPS. Yeah, because how far off from it could it have been? I wonder how deep it was. Well, it had to be fairly deep. Because it, it's like once they, it was attached to the survey ship by a special cable, uh, they were collecting sounding temperatures another day to attract movements of foreign submarines nearby. So that almost makes me think that maybe they had it on a long line trying to get it away, you know, because they're a surface fleet, so they know that anything underwater has an idea where they're at. So if they were probably trying to be sneaky and had that thing out quite a ways when it went, you know, it got snagged. Uh, and they spent a lot of times uh, surveying for it, but they still haven't found it. So if I was you've, trying to look up real quick to see how deep that part is. I can understand it if it's deep. Yeah, I, I don't know, because you don't, if you're, uh, I'm assuming what they're saying, they're, without saying it, is that they're looking for subs. And we have an idea how deep subs can go. Yeah, well, here, here they said um, movements of foreign submarines. So let's say subs have, you know. I was looking here. It talked about that. Go ahead. I'm holding off till you finish. Sorry. <laughs> no, you're you're fine. We just. Oh, I was going to say, I'm reading this part here. We're talking about the, we're talking about the channel itself. And it's between the main islands of uh, Japan. And they were talking about, it's 19.5 miles at its narrowest. And extends territorial waters is three to three five, uh, nautical miles out instead of usually twelve, and that's to allow nuclear armed United States Navy warships and submarines to transit the straits without violating Japanese 
Japan's prohibition against nuclear weapons. It's at depths of 200 and 140 meters, respectively. So I was curious how deep it was in that area, 140 meters. You'd think they could find it. Yeah. Well, and I think that's probably what's embarrassing them is if you can't find it. But maybe a docked with this next uh, potential cool gear. This is something being added to uh, uh, the U.S.'s submarines. This is a Navy and General Dynamics electric boat are testing a prototype system that allows launch and recovery of unmanned underwater vehicles and payloads from the missile tubes and cruise missiles of a submarine. It's called the Universal Launch and Recovery Module. The system houses, launches, and recovers an underwater vehicle Lockheed-built 10,000-pound prototype called Marlin from the submarine's missile tubes. system shows promise in early testing. It's slated to go to sea aboard guided missile and nuclear power submarines next year, according to electric boat officials. That sounds cool. It does look pretty cool, doesn't it? You see the little mock-up they've got there in the plant? That is impressive. Yeah, I was looking for some other ones under the Navy, except the Navy won't let me back in. (laughs) (laughs) They figured out who's looking. Yeah, I'll have to cut back here and hit a different one. So the vehicle could weigh up to 30,000 pounds. The prototype vehicle is controlled by two laptop computers removing the need to adjust the infrastructure of a submarine, which you're referring to. They don't have to create new spaces on the submarine to house the system that operates it. It's essentially a giant elevator that hauls the 30,000 pounds, raises it from inside to a ship outside the ship. We're not modifying any of the submarine's infrastructure to control this. The system is also being configured by Electric Bolt in the Navy to work with Virginia payload modules and Virginia-class attack submarines begin construction in 2019. The VPM, or Virginia Payload Modules, consists of an effort to increase the missiles firing capacity of the Virginia-class submarines from 20 to 40 vertically fired missiles. Interesting. Just imagine if you filled all those tubes up with uh, some ROVs, what you could find. (laughs) (laughs) And then, say you have all that, this is uh, a little bit under photography, and it's one of those things that when you think about it, it's kind of like, duh, this should work but I'm always a little bit surprised. This is uh, an underwater pier inspection system using something that they're calling a clear water box. (laughs) As a side note, we used those 40 years ago. They taught how to use those in class. So they taught you how to use them? Right, for the same reason they're using them here. Yeah, because what they're... If you've got lousy visibility, you're basically... One of the ways is taking a clear bag fill it full of clean water, put that around the piling. You can actually see it, especially with a light, and then you can take photos. I mean, this is just so brilliant. I'm like, wow. <laughs> but it's something they've used for years. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, they're, I don't think they're taking credit for it. They're just saying, you know what, this is what we had to do in this situation. So yeah. you're, you're in the water. There's zero visibility. You need to have photos because they, they could go down and they could feel it. So they want to do 100% inspection of these piles. And the divers yeah. are going, yeah, this one's bad, and it's 80%, and they're doing all this stuff. But you've, you, you know what it is, is the money people told them they were full of crap. And they need to be able to prove it, so they did this. And um, they actually made, in this case, it was like a Lexan box. Yep, different materials. Yeah, but I was wondering if this is something that we could use. Like, I'd love to do, you know, movies underwater, but sometimes our visibility is crap, and I'm wondering, you know, how practical it would be to do something similar. It will work. And the the advantage, I mean, if you, you know, you've got some of these big clear poly bags now, 
you take that full of water from the surface, it's amazing what you can see with that poly bag. So maybe I just do that like for my dive mask. I've got this big, you know, giant pillowed sized Ziploc bag full of water. Yeah, <laughs> it'll work. I mean, it sounds funny, but it will. You put that on the bottom with your lights to the side. Yeah. You got you've got almost like a, a freshwater, clear water environment because that's what you have. You're gonna have to try that this summer. I yeah. think you will be pleasantly surprised. I, I think I will. They just make so much sense. Also, I sent you another link on that sub. Uh huh. I mean, like your real picture. Uh oh. Oh, that's a handy little sub there. That's the one that the Japanese had. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. the surface shot's pretty nice. Yeah, a little... There's uh, one down below. That's what the Beatles were singing about, a little yellow submarine. little yellow submarine, that's right. I'd paint mine yellow. Yeah. Well, also, if, it's, if it finds its way to the surface, at least you can pick it up out in the water. Yeah. The system is available by Lockheed Martin for sale or lease, usually to oil and gas service providers for underwater inspections. 10-foot-long yep. AUV, advanced autonomy and high-resolution optics, acoustic sensing generator, 3D geo-referencing models of underwater platforms surrounding seabeds, creating an accurate view of the area. Get one now while supplies last. <laughs> uh, I just sent you another one of a modification to it with everything you're talking about. Now, is this going to be like RoboCop? Is this the uh, Predator drone <laughs> version? I, I'm not going to go there now. <laughs> I, I could give you some military ones, but uh, I'm not allowed to do that. DOE would not like that. Defense and aerospace giant Lockheed Martin developed laser-based imaging system for underwater inspection of gas and oil. Yeah, anything else I can find. Yeah. Well, I got stock in that company is looking for minerals, so I'm all for that. <laughs> After I got I always dollars. remember the funny part was back in National, uh, not near graphics, but... Uh, Popular, remember the two the magazine Popular Science magazine. Oh, yeah. and what was the other one? Yeah, Popular uh, Science, Popular Mechanics. Popular Mechanics. I remember when they put the articles out on the Glomar when they were going out and mining manganese modules or nodules on the bottom. Yeah, and that was the purpose of the Glomar. It was developed strictly for that. Do you remember that? Was that the Hughes vessel that he made? Yes. Right. Yeah. And that's and that was the cover story when they went out to salvage that Soviet boat. But I remember reading those articles. So it's interesting when you see what these are they're developing for the oil industry, blah blah blah. Yeah, what ain't they telling you what else they're doing? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, there's there's some deep pockets there. Yeah. Cuz because really what you're doing that 2.1 million dollars, that's just covering the parts. The uh engineering of it's already been paid for by somebody else. I'm just curious why they haven't taken these babies that's got all this laser measurement stuff and gone down to the uh, that section there in the Bermuda Triangle where they found the underwater pyramids. You've seen those pictures, right? Yeah, you're, the, you're the side scans. Yeah, you're assuming they haven't. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm I'm saying I haven't seen those freaking photos yet. I mean, <laughs> I want to see what it really looks like. They're and not you know, s- somebody's got them. Yeah, yeah, you just you, like the pictures from Area 51. I want to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know they've got all those photos. I'd like to see what those pyramids look like. It's probably like uh, when they had the face of Mars where they took the original photo, and then when they came back later, it wasn't anything like what the photo was. It was because the resolution was so low, that's just the averaging, and it may look like a pyramid, and then everything else is just a bunch of rocks. Yeah. So, And I, I think in some cases that's what we're seeing here in some of these spots where everybody spots 
pyramids. It's a natural acoustic shape, I think, that happens when you have a, a peak or a high point. It kind of fills in the cracks, and when you get there, yeah. it's just a bunch of junk. Kind of like, remember the one that we had, we covered where it looked like the Millennium Falcon? <laughs> yes, that yeah. was really cool. Yeah, it was. I wish that had been true, though. That would that would be neat. Well, that does it. Boy, we, we really killed the, the news this week. <laughs> Went over and over and over. Oh, my gosh, we've run long. Jim had to, the reason you don't hear Jim's voice anymore, I think he had to to go and take care of a fire a lumberyard was on was on fire and he's a volunteer fireman so lost him you know hopefully he's safe and they get that taken care of under control nobody's hurt oh over there by clementines that's down there by the uh docks by the docks well clementines in st joe oh that's where it's at yeah oh Big fire going on by clementines lumberyard i'm trying to figure what lumberyard is over there well, you've got uh, the Val Rubber, where they do the printing press rollers. Yeah. You've got Barney's Boathouse, which is a bar on the river. You've got the old box factory. You've got the condos. You've yeah, got the marinas. No, no lumber yard. Not that I'm aware of. you got the waste treatment plant on the island. Um, Interesting, yeah. wherever it is. All I know is that's not going to be fun for the firemen, because right now it's freaking cold. And that spray is going to make them walk in ice tubes. If if you're a photographer, this is when you want to get the shots of the firemen, is when they're going and doing that. Oh, I think Mark Mark will probably be out there. You know Mark Perrin, he used to be a mud clubber. Yeah. He does the uh, photos now for the Herald Palladium a lot uh-huh. more. So he will probably be out there. So we might be able to see some of those pictures. Home Builder Supply by Val Lumber. Oh, by, okay. Uh, huh. I'll have to go down there sometime take a look. Tomorrow probably won't be a good day, but. <laughs> no. Have to take a look. If you want to get to our show notes and see what that's like, it's www.scubaobsessed.com. Uh, we are on iTunes. We're also on WRVO Radio. You can listen to us there. Or Stitcher, if you go in Stitcher. If you haven't signed up for Stitcher, you can go uh, www.stitcher.com and uh, put in the code word SCUBA, and you can subscribe to the Scuba Obsessed podcast there as well. WRVO Radio has has a uh, programming on outdoor activities if you're into fishing camping mountain climbing outdoor sports i've got a lot of programs and that is feeding 24 7 all the time thank rich fiala for having us on there uh, let's see you can follow us on twitter at scoob obsessed we talked a little bit about scoop it a lot of these articles and many more that don't make the cut to get in the show you can follow them on that we're also on facebook facebook.com forward slash scoob obsessed uh, and then Mud Club, we're, we're, we're getting ready. We didn't get any diving. And I understand, Mac, you've got your gear out to be serviced. Yep, I got all my regs into Wolf's uh, after reading that last book that I talked about at the dive meeting uh-huh. of uh, accidents and stuff. You know, it's like you're going to see yourself there in a couple of those. Uh-huh. Oh, and it's no. called Diver Down, uh, Real World Scuba Accidents, How to Avoid Them. And most of them are common sense items. But it's it's still amazing how often you're going to find yourself doing some of these common sense items that you shouldn't do. Mm-hmm. And one of them is not maintaining your regulators. And even though mine are working fine, uh, I did take one in, and after he ultrasonic or put it in the in the bath, got all the little valves working. It worked so much better. <laughs> so I said, okay, I, I took them all in and said, get them done, and uh, I'm going to minimize one one of the issues on. Fatalities, making sure my gear works. 
Yeah, and that's probably a good thing because you had had a few times where you were having some free flows. I still do in the river on my uh, octopus. That's why I took the octopus out. Mm-hmm. And because with the current there, once you burp it in the cold, yeah, then she free flowed. Yeah, and that's why I took that off. Yeah, I've been I've been pretty fortunate. Yeah, I'm still within my service period for having mine uh, done last year. I think mine's been about <clears throat> so many years. Uh, <laughs> yeah, not quite double digits, but oh my goodness, it, they I needed to have them redone. Yeah, so I did. Yeah, because even if you're maintaining and doing O rings and that sort of stuff, there is some extra TLC that the, the gear needs. So, uh, yep. So you, in, any more word on ice? Is it still building or is it starting to wean My its way down? My understanding is you have got huge, or meaning lots of ice and thick ice at the end on lakes and on neck of the woods. Uh, I was going to put a letter out probably this week, putting a proposal, meaning I'd like to do an ice dive, but I would like to do a a professional ice dive for a lot of people who would mm-hmm. like to participate, but we need a minimum number of people who will show up and will provide certain items. Yep. And I'll put that out, and if we get the support we need, then we can have a lot of people and do it safely, and that's the whole deal. Yeah. When, when we're out there diving, it's not that we don't do it safe. We may not do it in a fashion. And if I had new people, I don't want them to dive with us some of the ways we dive. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? I, I I know exactly where you're going from it, and yeah, and and people who who are just listening to the show are are thinking how how crazy are we? And we're not being dangerous, but there is a certain way that you're supposed to do it. There's a better way to do it, and yes, after reading this book, I'm not going to take newbies out without this way. Now, obviously, if we just cut a hole in the ice, and I got a ten foot line on you with a harness. And I put you down and under the water, under the ice, two feet. The chance of you having a real problem is going to be slim to none, that I can't get your butt out. But I'd like to make it a higher quality dive than that for new people. Yeah. And and it's a good opportunity. So I think with, with that in mind, we need to plan a date. We need to make it all day and, and, and have it be an activity. So we've got food and... Shore support and all sorts a of stuff. snowmobile with a trailer? Yeah. Oh, yeah. When, we, when we've done this the big time, having a snowmobile with a trailer is wonderful because it gives you that immediate rescue ability of shoreline to dive site and hauling the gear because we're not getting any younger. And that's the biggest problem I have is our guys are 55, 60, and older. Yeah. Now, now we yeah, yeah, go ahead. And... That's one of the other items. If we can have some mechanical means to help minimize it, because we need pallets out there to stand on instead of standing in the water. You're going to have a backup diver dressed with its tender and its own line with a shelter. That's the way I want to do it and actually have new people come out. Then we're prepared to give them a good quality time with with the best provisions for safety that you can get. Now, with you know, we had talked about Lake 16, but I think if we're going to get a lot of local support, you know, especially shore support, we may have to do something a little bit closer to home. So, you oh, know. yeah, and I was I was not thinking of Lake 16 Yeah, uh, uh, because that, the logistics are going all the way over there, and that's, that adds two-hour drive. Yeah. You, I'm you, talking singer. I'm talking magician yeah. or uh, pawpaw. Yeah. So what what is a because I think with the ice the way it is now, especially if we get a snowmobile, maybe this is an opportunity to get to some spots where 
either weeds or algae or something prevents us from being able to get to it? Is there a spot we've always wanted to hit out in the lake that we'd love to have some awesome visibility? Uh, that one area that we've got a, a, a reward looking for a particular boat. Yep. We know the area. We normally don't dive it in the summer because the weed's about 15 feet high. But I have not been out there for a year and a half. And with that new sonar treatment, it really made a difference in the weed levels. But all of last year, the first year forever, I had five-foot visibility as my best. And I'm doing better than that in the river. Yeah. Yeah. So but, yeah, we'll, uh, I wouldn't mind a dive out there just to check out the water. Yeah, we'll have to we'll play banks. Yeah. So maybe that that'll be a spot. And I think it would make a big deal of that we could maybe get some people go with us. And we also are hitting and we've been teasing it for many weeks now, the show season. So our world underwater, we are just about a week away. Yeah. Fifteenth. Fifteenth of February in Chicago. I know Bob is going to go, Gallion's going, I'm going. My understanding, you're well, you're going to try to go on a Sunday, as I think. Uh, I, I can't imagine Jim not wanting to go. Uh, I'm planning to go. We'll have a good number of people. Uh, and then the one after, of course, is who's going to go to either, uh, you know, the Seahorses or Ohio. I'm still, I haven't seen the uh, fine listing of, presenters and seminars and that'll be my determining factor of which one i go if i go at all but that's the 22nd not too far away no i got luge on this weekend uh-huh so i'm and with my regulators gone it doesn't make any difference yeah yeah i'm i'm it's like with the snowstorms it's canceled so many of my kids events i have no idea when they're going to happen or not so we're i'm running into I'm probably not going to have much visibility more than two or three days in advance of when something's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah, cause I'm, and i got to do some camping here, but if we get this cold snap in, they're going to delay that again. So we've even talked about maybe it not being camping. We'll just do to, you know sledding or tobogganing or, or something and call it even. That would be fun. Yeah. I was almost thinking about shore support for us, but I don't know if I want the responsibility for a bunch of teenagers running around on the ice. <laughs> probably not. So, let's see. We, anybody got anything to plug? Nope, other than our world and four T-horses for this month. Got Valentine's Day coming up. That's one day you don't want to forget. Chocolate. Yeah, I am. I do have plans for Valentine's Day, which will be the first time in a long time. My wife and I have typically been unable to do anything on that day, but we are going to be going out and doing something. Actually, uh, Mr. Kleeman and his wife will be joining us. So we've got all sorts of plans to splurge and have a good time. Excellent. Well, the only other item I remember, Jim, you were going to go to something on the full face by SAS? Yes, that's next week. Go out and take a look at that Thursday. SAS has got a seminar on full face. So I want to go see see what they've got and get some idea of pricing on comms, etc. for the fire department dive team. Yeah, for a rescue team or recovery team, you can't beat yes. full face with Kamal. That's, I mean, because then when you're tending one-on-one, it, that's really the only way to do it if you're doing safety and recovery, rescue I, diver. Yeah, I, I would like, it would be nice for, if not a few individuals, maybe even the club or somebody to have a set of calm 
Well, we do have that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I never see it. We could have used it many times. Yeah, we, we bought it for a recover of stuff. Fuck, we got underwater sonar guns, man. Oh, goodness. All these good things I don't ever get you to see. You didn't know that? No. Why don't we use this stuff? Oh, you got to get it out. Some you got to plug it in. And... Some people have. Okay. We just need to use it more often. Well, the visibility has increased so much that you don't need to use it now. And again, when you're looking for something in the middle of the night, dark water, the sonar gun comes in handy. Just stand there, get two feet off the ground and do a 360. And that what you're looking for, well, you know, it's flat, 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 bing. Okay, now I know where to go. Now, is this underwater? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I need to get familiar with that for rescue and recovery. Yeah. That- a great tool for rescue and recovery. It would be. Well, it's it's good if you're looking like for a wellhead, or if you're in a flat area and you're looking for um, a sunken boat or a barge. You go down, bingo, you can find it in a hurry. Yeah, Larry's got that. He's had that for years. Yeah, that would be handy because there's been times where I'm always amazed when we go down an anchor line. Yeah. And how many times you spin around that anchor line on the way down? Yeah. 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 yeah like you'll, I'll take a a bearing on the surface and. I usually visualize the wrecks 90 degrees off of where they really are. Like, <laughs> like Max wreck, I'm sh- I still don't think in my mind I've got the right orientation to shore. I figure what we can do is get a huge, big piece of plastic and cement, make a big bag and fill it full of clear water and then lay it <laughs> over the wreck. And then we could find it and work on it, maybe. Uh, you if know, you go down to the bow, <laughs> the stern of the wreck is back towards St. Joe. Yeah, just uh, you know, it's a little bit east of North. Yeah, that's just, a, that's, we can that's, get the orientation on our wreck, but yeah, that's not too far off of where I've I visualize it. I mean, it's a just anytime a touch, you need but, a radar gun to find your way around, it's too dark to be playing with. Yeah, yeah. So that that allows you to find the yeah, the, uh, the gold or the bodies. Well, generally, a big object on the bottom, like the car, because if it's flat bottom, all of a sudden you get a bump, then you know, okay, let me go over there and tell you what the bump is. Sometimes it's not so much a bump as it is a hole in the ground. That we too. found that last year. Yeah, I'm still going to go back out that way. I want to find those faults, that fault line, and take some pictures of that. Did you read that in the paper today about the uh, the the guys who were home that heard this thump thump and they couldn't figure out what it was and they walked out and they got this looked like he had an earthquake. Yeah, that went down his his road and it's a thaw cycle and it actually split the freaking earth. Yeah, I saw that. They uh, they were calling them, like, ice quakes or something. Yeah, the... that's it, ice quakes. I couldn't think of the word. Yeah. The... It makes me wonder now if you can have those underwater, which well, would account for that ridge. Oh, yeah. Well, the, well, I guess, well, how deep was that ridge? Oh, you mean the one I'm talking about? Yeah. Uh, 15 foot. Uh, I guess it's possible. Yeah, that would make sense, actually, Mac, when you think about it. If you had, if you had ice that had built yeah. up. Oh, and it'll 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 impact. It'll 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 be fifteen foot deep in that area. Yeah. Well, that's how my dad always used to tell me that the sandbars would form. Is that part of it was the ice? Because you know, the ice would thrash there around the shore, which would make that deeper. And then you'd have sand blow out on the ice, and then when the ice melted, it would fall down, and that would build your sandbars up. Whenever uh, I like to fly, when the ice first goes away, what you'll find is where the bottom has been gouged out. Uh-huh. And that'll fill in with sediment first. So as you're flying over, you can see where the holes are because all the debris went down into the scalloped out area where the uh-huh. ice impacted. And 
I like to do that when the first hit goes up because it's when you find that loose wood and the shipwreck crap that got dug out during the in the shallows by the ice, and until it gets reburied, you've got some targets. But usually when I see that, by the time I can try to get back and find it with a boat, it's not there. And I have seen some huge sections of wood out there right after the ice breaks, but I cannot relocate them. Frustrating. Now, you say that, and I know we're going long for this episode, so this is fine. Uh, I want to show you a link, and this is from Facebook. Well, you're not on. You're not still online, are you? Oh, yeah, you are. We haven't had the joke. Yeah, we had a joke. We're still I going. We were a BS session. Sorry about that. Yeah, we're just keeping going. No, that's fine. That's fine. But uh, I want to find this photo. I think I can share it with everybody. If not, uh, but somebody's been posting, and in, in, in Facebook, one of the one of my favorite websites are the the ta- they take take any town's name and then they'll add the good old days or you know you're from whatever, and people post like their old photos and and things about the town, and somebody who moved away a long time ago has found a bunch of stuff on the area and they've been posting it and they had photos of the piers that I had never seen before. Let's see here. I haven't seen this. Where's that at? I'd like to look at the This is on the Berrien, the Berrien Springs page. So what I want to do... Uh, da, 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 da. Oh, come on. I think it's a Berrien Springs page. I'm losing your audio, by the way, for some Are reason. You? Okay. Yeah. Okay, let me see here. And I'm going to paste it to you in Skype, and you tell me if you can get to it. Give that a try. And the Facebook group is called Bering Springs, the Good Old Days. And that is one of the St. Joe River with the, when the Silver Beach is still going. And they have another one of the steamship Eastland. Were you able to get to it, Mac? Uh, it didn't come up. Yeah. All I've got is Home Builder Supply by Val Lumbers in my last entry. Oh, I'm Oops, sorry. Here, just came, just came. Yeah, that was that was my mistake. I didn't press the little key. Yes, I've got that picture. Okay. And here's another one. This one's of the of the Eastland, which that's the steamship that capsized uh, with 844 lives lost. Yeah, in Chicago. Yeah. And, the, and uh, you know, a little trivia, who, what company did most of the people on the ship at that time work for? Actually, there were three ships involved on that, and they were all going over to Michigan City for a, for a, a play day. And the reason a lot of them got on the Eastland uh, was because that was supposed to be the fastest ship. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to remember, I keep thinking it was a telephone telegraph company or something like that. I, I just General can't Electric. remember. Okay. Yep. And uh, in the uh, one of the steam engines my dad's working on, most of the people who built that engine died <laughs> on that wreck. Okay. Okay. Now here's the did, one. Did you ever read the, the whole results of how much political fallout came from the Eastland? I, I haven't in a while. I need to go and revisit it. Yeah, very interesting. This picture you just put up, Darren, that postcard shows the old bridge upriver. Yeah, the yeah. I, Which one are you guys talking about? I see the old St. Joe and the city of Benton Harbor. And then keep going to the right a little further up by the island. Oh, you, let me go back to the other picture. This makes for great radio. <laughs> Just describing pictures. You got the railroad right. bridge, the Blossom Land Bridge, the Bicentennial Bridge. Except it doesn't look like the Bicentennial. It looks like a smaller bridge. And then a little further up river, out up where the up north of where the bank is now, or further, yeah, further up river than the bank. It looks like there was another. Bridge I don't there. see that picture. Uh, which picture are you looking at now? 
I'm looking at the I'm first picture you posted of Silver Beach. I'm looking up at the Swing Bridge, the Blossom Bridge, and the other bridge. But I can't see the one up by the bank. That's not on this picture. So is there another uh, picture I'm the missing? the water tower on the Benton Harbor side? Hmm? Say again? You've got, the, you've got the Centennial right and the Blossom. That's the only two bridges I see. No, if you do the one where you can and see Silver Beach. I'm at that yeah. one. Okay. And then you see the... First the, swing bridge is the, the first swing bridge is the railroad bridge. Yep. Right. Then you got the Centennial. Right. Yep. And then you got that's Blossom. Where's well, the other one? And then, yeah, Blossom Land, then Bicentennial. But yep. that's not the Bicentennial. That's a small bridge. It looks like it. And then go to the right on up Rivermore. I, I, my picture doesn't go up. I don't... That's what I'm saying. I don't see what you guys are looking at. Good mind. that. Here, let me give you give you the link. You might have to click on it. You have to might have to click on the the photo to get a larger view of it. I'm doing that. Can you see the water tower? Oh, bingo! I just got it. Oh, yep. Now I see the one you're talking about over by where the bank used to be. Yep. yep, Jim, I got it now. And that's that's, a, that's the other swing bridge. Right. That's where we that's where we got the. Uh, the lanterns from we've got three I was say, lanterns. That's where the lanterns there. came from. Yep, that's the one it came off of. Okay, because that's about the area that I found. Well, downriver from that's a little bit where I found that red globe. Yep. Yeah, I've got some pictures of the ship canal there with the Chicora uh, in it. Is that what that is? That's a Chicora? No, 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 no. City no. Of Benton they, Harbor. Yeah, I'm saying that where you can see the ship canal go down behind in Benton Harbor. Mm-hmm. I've got pictures of that whole stretch with the ships on it. Yeah. Now, now look at the one where it's the the city of Benton Harbor, and you can see the lighthouse behind it. Right. And I didn't realize the lighthouse used to be on stilts like that. Well, the original lighthouse was up on shore. <laughs> yeah. Up on the bluff. Yeah. Well, that one, yeah, because you had the high house and the low house. Is that? Yes. Is that what we're seeing here? Is the is that the low house at the end of the pier? I'm trying to get uh, back to the picture. Tough thing is these are postcards, and there's no dates on them. So they're kind of, uh, you know, we could be looking across 50 years here in just like three photos. Well, when I worked at Voice of Music back in the, well, actually 69, 70, uh, we rented all of Silver Beach, the pavilion, for one whole day for the employees. So everything was free. And that's a wooden roller coaster. Yeah. Well, uh, now let's uh, get to the photo, the 1904, the pier. Okay, I'm trying to find that. There you go. It's the Napier Bridge. Okay. Yeah, see, there's also a State Street Bridge, too. Yeah, which, I think that's the one we were looking at was a State Street Bridge. Now, was a State Street Bridge a swing bridge as well? Well, for whatever reason, I'm not being able to kick those pictures up, guys. Yeah, this one on the pier, it looks, it's it's all wooden. This is, it's showing the South Pier. It's all wooden and there's people on it. Okay, I've got that one, too. i got a picture of that one. This is the point I love that I've got pictures of these guys fishing off this pier. And um, jumping off, that they've done that forever and ever and ever. I'm trying to remember when they started putting the pilings here, I think was in the late 50s, early 60s is when they made this so you didn't have the current flow through it. So this used to be a, an elevated pier, the South Pier. It's just like all piers, you used to have the flow of water through it. So what did they do? They just came in with rock and built a up sheet piling. Oh, sh- then, oh, that's right. Yeah. Put the sheet piling down and filled it up with concrete. Yeah. Oh, boy, this next photo, I forgot about this one. If you go click next from that one, you can see where the north pier is a wooden pier. And that makes me wonder, Mac, when we had that wood that that came up on the shore, could that have been pier parts? No, oh, that was from, they used to have uh, Plank's Tavern. up. You know where the, where we have the Scornia now? Mm-hmm. On that top of the dune used to be a uh, hotel tavern that was like the one on Mackinac City. The guy oh. who built the one in Mackinac 
had that one. And it had a, a um, in the front, it had basically, um, not a, they had pilings and stuff in, in the front of it shored up. And that's what that piece was, I think, is from that, from the old days. Didn't have the the same construction as the ship hull. Wow. Are you seeing some of these other photos where they've got the, the wooden north pier and then they got one where it shows both the north and south? I, I don't know how you're getting there because I'm, it's, okay, hang on. Now I think I may see where you're doing. Yeah, I'm trying to paste it to you, but because it's an album, I think it's. Okay, I just got it. I got it now. Yeah, you got to do next and for probably. I'm going previous. all the way up to the front. Yeah, all I've seen all of these pictures. Oh, have you? Yeah, I've well, heck, I've done a lot of research on this area. Yeah, because they've they've got one. I got the pictures. Yeah, that's a nice one there. Yeah, hey, I've got a picture of the um, lighthouse without the boat in it and on a different angle during the daytime, not the setting sun. Oh, the State Street Bridge there. They're showing that lumber company on the left and railroad station on the right. See, that bridge isn't there anymore. That's an old. That was an old swing bridge. You notice the difference when you start looking at the life-saving crew doing their capsizing? Yeah. That's 100. Where that comes out is in the river. Take that boathouse, turn it 90 degrees opposite, uh-huh. and that's the way it is now. Oh, so they turned it? Well, yeah, because that, that, that whole wall now is different than that. Yeah, because now that's a full solid but, pier. But the entry is in the little bay area. Yeah. Now, there it came straight out. Yeah, and that was probably because they wanted to, because you're you're rowing by hand, they wanted to, they didn't want to make them row all the way around that. Right, because if you take a look at the, the building straight behind it, the red one, that's still there. Yeah, that's the, uh, the original. It used to be the armory. Armory. It's now the yacht club. Is that a Chikora picture he's talking about? I didn't see that. Now, you see the pictures with all the sailboats? Yeah. You know where that's at? Uh, yeah, that's looking That's that's uh, looking towards the the Coast Guard station. Right. And that looks like if you went around to the side to the right, that's going into the St. Joe Basin. Yeah, and where the armory's at. Yes. Oh, somebody went and added some more pictures since I looked last time. Oh, then you see the covered escalator that they had uh, in St. Joe, moving stairway had, in the lakefront? Right. Cost a nickel. We used to have two of them. Um, you see where this one is and how the the walkway comes down. Mm-hmm. If you're if you're in that pizza place we went to after the uh, river dive behind yeah. the you know the bluff, that's where the other one was. There was a, a walkway down there at that time. Yeah, it used to be a nickel to go up on the escalator on the moving stairway. Then ships, how much things change, but they really don't change. Yeah, because there's certain there's a couple of the streets where you look at that and you you could superimpose the street right now and it'd be the same. And then there's other streets where it's completely different. Right, and then you got that good picture of the Chikora against the, behind the people on Silver Beach. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Now I see it. That's a cool shot. And you you figure keep... the pilot house is gone, the mast is gone, because the one was up at the post office for years and years. Stack is gone. All the top deck is raised, or meaning gone. So I think you're still going to find a good piece of that boat on the bottom. And that's a steel-hulled ship, isn't it? No. no. Steel-clad. Clad, it's a yes. wood ship with steel cladding on the outside. Hmm. There's got to be, there's pieces that if you found, you'd be able to identify it or you'd know that they came from something like it. Well, we looked yeah. at the plans in Bowling Green. The rudder's unique. The prop is unique. So you find the prop or the rudder and you're going to be able to say if that's a Chikora or not. And the engine, of course. And that will be there. Mm-hmm. A picture of the cannon, those are the original cannonballs. They've got plastic ones now. Oh, they're plastic? I haven't touched them. I thought they were the... No, they're not real. It's amazing that Fireman Memorials was... was it even looks old in the picture, and that was. Yeah. Go to years the ago. clubhouse at Edgewater 
in St. Joe, there was yeah. a lot of stuff on the Tiscornia side that you had no clue was there. What, Tiscornia side had stuff? Yeah. That's where the, the uh, Plank Tavern was, the big hotel. I mean, there's not a trace of that there. This Edgewater, none of that. Look at look what they got going out into the water. Yeah. Now the, and you can see the the pilings down to the right of it. There's a, that's what I'm saying. There's tons of stuff out there. Now this Napier Bridge, where was where? I mean, I'm assuming that's Napier Road, but I'm just having a hard time visualizing where that is. I'm trying to think. Uh, you know where the old Volkswagen place used to be? Yeah. There's there's you can see the remnants of the old bridge that used to go down that side. Oh, okay. And that used to go over to like where the basin is, Whirlpool Basin. Yeah. And this perspective is, I can't place the perspective. Because that almost looks like the Pawpaw River on the left side coming in to this. But I can't, I can't say for sure. Yeah, I, I, I think I got it now. Yeah. And it was like a Model A or something they got running across it. God, I, I, could, I could just stare all day at all these old photos. Okay. The picture I like where it says, Postcard St. Joe, Benton Harbor, Niles, all these boats. Yeah. That's in the Whirlpool Basin. Okay, yeah. Yeah. See, a floating dock item in the middle of that basin. <laughs> and I remember that when I first moved here. That's early 60s. Well, I think we probably better close this out so I can get the I editing. Suppose, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm sure a lot of people are going to, they're probably fast-forwarding through yeah. this. Yeah, BSing is one thing. <laughs> <laughs> Reminiscing about photos is another. Yeah, since they have no clue and we're here. Yeah. So, you guys ready? Yes, sir. Ever ready. Okay, here we go. Shortly after a British Airways flight had reached a cruising altitude, the captain announced, Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain. Welcome to Flight 293, nonstop from London Heathrow to Philadelphia International. The weather ahead is good, so we may have a smooth, uneventful flight. So sit back and, oh my God, silence followed. So moments later, the captain came back on the intercom. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry if I scared you. I was talking to you, and a flight attendant accidentally spilled hot coffee in my lap. You should see the front of my pants. From the back of the plane, an Irish, pas- an Irish passenger yelled, For the love of Jesus, you should see the back of mine. <laughs> it would get your attention. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now, when you went to pilot school, is that one of the things they 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 taught you is uh, to don't say that, don't say. Yeah, oh my turn God. your calm off. <laughs> so, on that note, until next week, go out there and get wet, and stay safe, and check your pants. <laughs>